So not too long ago, I had to go to a, an event of some sort that required me to wear a little bit d- different clothing than I usually wear. I thought, I think I have a pair of shoes that will go with this. And I go back in my closet like, oh yeah, here's these shoes. I'll make it work. I'll wear these shoes. I put them on and I was like, ow, wow, I do not like these shoes. And these were shoes I used to wear all the time. And somehow I just didn't notice how uncomfortable they were until having not worn them for quite some time. So I took the shoes off and didn't wear them. I didn't have to force myself to do this. I didn't, well, should I put them on? Should I take them off? I'm like, no, these are too comfortable. They're coming, too uncomfortable. They're coming off. So I let go of of that idea I want to wear these shoes. It wasn't too hard to let go. Recently I heard, or not so recent, a number of years ago, I heard uh, Matthew Brunsilver, another Dharma teacher, some of you may know. And he was given a teaching on the seven factors of awakening. Some of you may know that one of the factors is joy. This something that we've been talking about here. This is definitely, it's, part, it's a factor of awakening. It's part of what's needed for the awakening process or, or what matures, maybe I should say, is part of the awakening process. And he was, Matthew was talking about joy and he identified something that really stuck with me. The joy of being wrong. This idea of letting go of the idea that I need to be right. I'm right. I, I'm the one that knows. I'm the one that uh, has the truth. And everybody else, I don't know what they're doing, but they're not right like I am. And this joy of being wrong, not only letting go of the idea of being right, but also just this kind of it's it's fun to learn something new like oh wow i didn't know that okay okay so this letting go of particular view about ourselves this view of others that they're not right because i'm right There's a small little verse that the Buddha says. One who removes the anger that has arisen as one removes a snake's spreading venom. That person sloughs off the here and beyond as a snake sheds its old worn out skin. Snakes shedding their skin, it's a natural process. They're growing and their skin doesn't grow with them. So they 
slough it off. It's not painful, the snake. They have new skin underneath. There's this very famous simile in the suttas. Chances are many of you have heard it. It goes like this. Suppose there was a person traveling along the road and they see this large deluge of water and the near shore was dubious and perilous and the far shore was a sanctuary free of peril. But there is no ferry boat or bridge for crossing over. And they'd think, well, why don't I gather the sticks and branches and leaves and make a raft? (laughs) R-A-F-T. And riding on the raft and paddling with my hands and feet, I can safely reach the other shore. And so they do exactly that. And when they'd cross over to the far shore, they'd think, wow, this raft has been very helpful to me. Riding on the raft and paddling with my hands and feet, I safely crossed over. Why don't I hoist it on my head and go wherever I want, carrying it on my head? And the Buddha says, what do you think? Would that person be doing what should be done with that raft? No, venerable sir. And what should a person do with that raft? When they crossed over, they should think, this raft has been very helpful to me. Why don't I let go and beach it on dry land or set it adrift on the water and go wherever I want. That's what a person should do with their raft. You're limited where you can go if you have a big raft that you're carrying on your head. I think it's pretty obvious what all these little vignettes are pointing to, this idea that letting go of things that no longer work letting go of things that are constrictive or restrictive, inhibitive, not wearing uncomfortable shoes if we don't need to, letting go of a view that you're right, sloughing off old worn-out skin, like maybe like snakes do, or putting down what is helpful in one context, but maybe not so helpful in another context. So this letting go, putting down, sloughing off, that's being pointed to is a natural process. We don't have to convince ourselves or debate. It's this movement of recognizing, oh, this is extra. This is not needed. I can let this go. It's a falling away of things. Our relationship to the thing, whatever that thing or view or whatever it might be, our relationship to it has shifted. 
maybe we used to think, oh, this is something I need and I have to have in order to be me, or so that other people think something in particular about me. But instead, we can let go or soften our attachment. What we used to be holding on to, clinging, being tangled up with in some kind of way, our relationship to it shifts. And we're able to let it go, not hold so tightly, not be clinging. It's because we understand something about whatever it is we were holding on to that we didn't understand before. And so it's just this natural process of letting them go. And this letting go is not so much about what you lose. It's not so much like what was letting go of what the object was that got let go of. But it's about what you gain. We can only go so far with a raft on our head that we're carrying. If we put it down, just as this simile the Buddha is saying, we can go wherever we want. We can fit through doorways if we don't have a raft on our head. We don't get as tired if we don't have a raft on our head. So one of the things we gain is this greater freedom of movement or what's possible. But something else we gain is just this sense of ease taking off uncomfortable shoes. Like, oh, I'm going to let go of this idea that I'm going to wear these ever again. So the sense of ease, we might even say delight, a happiness, joy, lightness, a unburdening, a relief, the joy of letting go. And this type of letting go is the type that creates the conditions for something that Nikki and I have been talking about. We've been calling it different things, but like this gladness, pentad, gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, concentration, like this, this cascade that happens starting the cascade, it can begin with a certain type of no longer clinging. It can start with a unburdening, a releasing. And the type of unburdening or releasing that is being pointed to here is the kind that does lead to some relief or some release. So it's not the type of letting go where you're feeling, oh, in order to be a good Buddhist, a good practitioner, I should not be holding on, therefore I'm going to do it. 
No, this is the type of something that there, afterwards, after the letting go, there is a little, I keep wondering this with my body, there's like this lightening up. If I could levitate, I would levitate here. (laughs) (laughs) The sense, right, of just being lighter. So that's what's being pointed to here, is the type of letting go that leads to a sense of being lighter. It's not letting go just for letting go's sake. Thinking like, this is what I should do, this is what I'm supposed to do, and these types of things. And we can use that as a guide. Am I fe- do I feel lighter when I'm imagining this, when I'm doing this? What's interesting is this letting go leads, uh, supports this light, light, lightening up. So this happiness, I'll use happiness as a shorthand for that, was this big wide range of relief or uh, some delight. But you don't need, you don't need me to tell you that this works both ways, that when there's some happiness or some delight or some sense of well-being, it's easier to let go of things that we don't need, the things that are burdening us. Letting go and happiness, they, you can start with either one. And I'm using letting go and happiness is really broad terms. Letting go can be a, just a softening of the clinging. It can just be a little shift in our relationship. It doesn't have to be complete abandonment or something like that. And this happiness can just be a sense of a little more ease and spaciousness. But we might feel uncomfortable with this idea of letting go because it might sound kind of like renunciation or surrender, which might sound like deprivation, which might sound like a lack of safety or weakness or diminishment. And that's not what's being pointed to. Instead, is this letting go that's associated with some ease. So this is more about like, you know, just a shedding of what's not needed. And I appreciate uh, Gil Franz Dahl has said years ago, this uh, expression or the different way of thinking about this is what if we rethink this word like letting go is kind of like giving away. But what if instead of giving away, we have this idea of giving up, rising up, as if you were to put up onto an altar. And so there's this movement of the heart of like an offering this recognition of the power of this type of gesture, literally or figuratively, right? But the, 
giving up onto an altar. What I like about this is it points to the inclusion of the heart, inclusion of maybe like a gut feeling. So it's not just an intellectual thing. It's more like maybe some generosity or a sacred act. Rather rather than an obligation, rather than something we're supposed to do. So I'm using this vague language about letting go and I'm talking about shoes and snake skins and Maybe I'll get a little more specific. What are some of the things we can let go of? And the Buddha, he gave us some uh, guidelines. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's about getting, letting go in the service of the wholesome. And this word wholesome, some of you might know, is what's being trans it, the word is kusala, what's getting translated as wholesome. We could also translate this as skillful or helpful. So letting go and this giving away is in the service of something that's helpful, beneficial to our being, our state of mind, our life. It's this letting go that's in the service of creating this inner wealth, this inner treasure. So so it's not a deprivation. Instead, it's a way in which there's the increase, maybe, of the treasures that we have within, these beautiful qualities we have within, that all of us have. Here is a quote about... From the, from the suttas, from the Buddha. It's another simile. I kind of like these similes. They're like little tiny stories. Again, they're, you know, sometimes exaggerated to make a point. I don't think this one's quite so exaggerated. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. You can decide. Suppose, yeah, I'll just say that's like in Nepali, that's uh, the... Um, standard way to indicate that this is a simile is this word, suppose. Suppose there was a person in need of a snake. Don't ask me why exactly they need a <laughs> snake. <laughs> this isn't clear to me, but... Uh, suppose there was a person in need of a snake, and while wandering in search of a snake, they see a snake and grab it by the coil or the tail... And that snake would twist back and bite them on the hand or the arm or the limb and resulting in death or pain. Right? That's deadly snakes. Why is that? Because of their wrong grasp of the snake. Suppose there was a person in need of a snake and while wandering in search of a snake, they'd see a big snake and hold it down carefully with a forked stick that goes right behind the back of their heads. They're pinned down on the earth. 
And only then would they correctly grab it by the neck, after they had already used the forked stick. And even though that snake might wrap its coils around that person's hand or arm or some other limb, that wouldn't result in death or pain. Why is that? Because of the correct grasp of the snake. The Buddha isn't saying, don't grab snakes. He's saying... (laughs) (laughs) It just sounds funny, right? (laughs) It sounded good earlier, right? But he is saying, hold them in a certain way. Grab them, clasp them, cling, or cling to them in a certain way. In a way that you know has some wisdom. In a way that the snake is not going to come back. <laughs> it's very funny, huh? What happens is I saw somebody out there smiling and then it made me kind of think like how silly this was. So nobody smile, please. (laughs) (laughs) So what does this mean to not, I mean like to hold something correctly? And here's something else that I've uh, heard from or learned from Gil Fronstall that I found really helpful. This turns out this guy has lots of other good things to teach, those of you who know him, right? So it says sometimes we might want to hold something, like really hold on, like I'm grabbing onto this striker. Let go, let go, let go, go. Okay, okay. So we let go again. Thank you. Makes a noise. Somebody else has to come help, and it's uh, maybe not the best way. But what what would it be like to hold like this, just opening the palm of the hand? The striker is still there, but the relationship to it is different. So it's not that we. Ha- it's not about the strikers. It's about are we really holding on and then trying to drop them. Or can we just open our fist? It's the same way if I hold on to a bell really tightly and I want to ring it, it doesn't work. It has something different happens. If I don't ring it, hold it, something beautiful happens. Supporting to the way we hold on to things, as as opposed to saying that we can't hold on to anything. In all the Buddha's teachings, he's never saying you have to get rid of all your objects, your possessions, your wealth, the people in your life. Never. Sometimes we might have this feeling like, oh, am I supposed to do that? All those people in the suttas, they ordained and got rid of all their worldly possessions. Do I have to do that too? No. In the suttas, there are plenty of people who stay 
householders and become awakened. But I think we also know that this practice is not about just acquiring, 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 getting, 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 attaining, attaining, attaining. This practice is about letting go. It's this movement out with open hands. So we're letting go of what is not useful. What is not useful? Something that arises out of greed, hatred, or delusion. These three kind of like core motivations that humans have. There's so many different manifestations that this greed, hatred, or delusion might have. And so often we carry this anger that comes out of like maybe greed, hatred, or delusion. And we carry anger and grudges in our views. Angers and grudges often are underneath our opinions. And so this practice is asking us to let go clinging to our views and opinions. It's not saying that you can't have views. I'm going to define an opinion as a view that has a solution tied to it. This is a problem and here's what has to happen. So probably we could let go of that, this idea of, and here's what has to happen. So to hold our views lightly, say something, this is what makes sense to me right now. This is how I understand it. This is my provisional thinking. This is my hypothesis. This is what makes sense to me. I'm not sure any other way to hold it, but this is the way right now I, this makes sense to me. Like these are, this is different than this is right and everybody else is wrong. Of course we have views. But can we shift our relationship to this so that we're not just holding on so tightly, that we're not clinging? Because often clinging to views and opinions, this undermines the heart. It undermines some of the tenderness and openness and spaciousness that we can have in our hearts. Instead, it kind of keeps us full of judgments. This is good, that's bad. I'm good, everybody else is bad. I'm bad, everybody else is good. Or, you know, all these different permutations that we do. So letting go of clinging to views and opinions. And then when we go to do this letting go of clues, the clinging of views and opinions, we might notice that there's this extent in which there's a sense of self, a really strong sense of self that gets created when there's some clinging to views and opinions. The sense of, I'm here with this right, correct view, and there's everybody else over there. Or, I'm 
with this group of people and we have these views and we're different than everybody else that has those other views. So there's a real strong sense of me or us. There's nothing wrong with being with a group of people who have similar views. The problem we get into when we start to really highlight the separation between us and them, me and you. This is where troubles, like so many troubles in the world and in our life are associated with this. So to soften how we're holding views, saying like, well, this is a word that I sometimes use. It's not a, it's a weird word, but I say like, well, this is provisional. Like, this is what makes sense right now, but there may be more data later. Some of you know I'm trained as a research scientist, right? So I love this idea. Well, there may be more data that makes it seem different, but this is my working hypothesis, What else can there be some letting go of? Trying to possess or control other people. To the extent that we try to like, like to own them or control them, partners, children, parents, other people, whomever. Have you noticed they don't like it? And it doesn't work. Trying to control them. Controlling can, it, it, implicit in that is a certain amount of like possessing or owning. So can we let go of that? Can we shed that as best we can? This doesn't mean that we have to like end all relationships or anything like that? Of course not, of course not. But in the end, what we can do with other people is love them. And that takes the many different forms. I'm using this word love to be a really broad thing. Maybe it's just respect. Kind of like honor that they have their, that they are their own person. Sometimes recognize that they have to make their own decisions. We can't make their decisions for them. Of course not. So this letting go of trying to control or possess others. I know our lives would be so much better if we could. But it doesn't work that way. We know this. We really do know this. Maybe letting go of a sense of control, just in general. We don't get to control nearly as much as we think we can. It doesn't stop us from trying. (laughs) But we all have this experience that it doesn't work, this trying and then the frustration and the anger and maybe the embarrassment of when you realize or even trying to to control or all the different ways that this works. 
that the trying to control works. What if we allow things to be how they are at that moment, because that is how they are at that moment? And I want to be clear, I am not saying that we have to allow all this terrible injustices and oppression in the world, all the wrongs that are happening. I am not saying that. I am not saying that we should just be passive, just accept everything and be a doormat. I am not saying that. I am saying setting boundaries that are appropriate Here's what I can't control. Here's what feels like something that I can create the conditions in which it makes it more likely that something will happen. Instead of I'm going to make this happen, I'm going to work to create the conditions that it becomes more likely. That's very different than I'm going to make it happen. It's up to me. I have to do it. I'm going to create the conditions that it makes it more likely. There was a time when I was doing a certain amount of running and, you know, sometimes it's just not so easy. Whatever kind of exercise thing that we want to do, right? And I thought, okay, what can I do to make this easier? Okay, how can I create the conditions that this is more likely to happen? And this is a silly example, but part of why it's silly is because it worked. (laughs) Is um, I have these favorite socks that I just love to put on. They're just like so comfy. They're like they they have a certain amount of like compression around the arch that just feels really good, and they were just perfectly sized. I just love them. They have these cute colors. And in order to create the conditions I could go running, I always had a clean pair of socks. They're like, oh, I'll put on those socks. This is silly, right? But this was a small thing rather than making running happening. I'm just helping to create the conditions and making sure that I had a clean pair of those socks. That feels more doable and it's not oppressive insisting that somebody do something, insisting that I do something. So letting go of this sense of control that we often think that we have. Letting go of a sense of ownership goes along with this. Grasping of people or objects as mine. You know, of course, of course, right, this is, uh, do I have, is there anything here? Oh, this has my name on it. (laughs) Diana, this is Diana's bottle. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, at the end of this retreat, the tag comes off and it's whoever is the next teacher that sits at this location. So ownership certainly is useful. But 
like I don't actually like own this in the sense that when I die, it's going with me as part of the what, the death process or you know something like this, right? So ownership is useful. It's a convenient social convention that we all use and abide by and kind of recognize. It's different than you know that we get to control and own them. So maybe softening or lessening some of the clinging that we have with this ownership. This is mine. Notice how the sense of mine really highlights the sense of self. This is Diana's. It's not Nikki's. It's not Tanya's. It's Diana's. As soon as there's a sense of mine, it's implicit in that is that it's not yours and it's not yours and it's not yours and it's not yours and it's not yours. Creating this separation, a strong sense of self. So something to let go is maybe some of this sense of ownership. I'm not saying give away all your possessions. I'm just saying recognize that this is a very useful social convention which is different, right, than saying this is mine and I can control it and as this body goes through a dying process, (laughs) these objects are going to go through a dying process and then do whatever happens with death. No, that's not what's going to happen. After death, these plastic may still be here, right? So, So we're letting go of all these things, right? People views, or not letting go of people, but trying to control them. Or We can still have relationships, of course, of course. Trying to possess others, or having a sense of control, having some ownership, maybe a strong sense of self is really at the center of all of this. So not just these like outdated, inaccurate self-concepts we have, and let go of those. But we're also pointing to the sense of self that is at the, seems like it's at the center of everything we experience. And sometimes that's really pronounced. For example, when we feel like this is Diana's bottle, like, oh, yeah. It's this this person's, not anybody else's. There's a real strong sense of this person here. But when you're doing your favorite thing, gardening, knitting, something on the computer, cooking, when you're doing your favorite thing, there isn't such a strong sense of self. You're kind of just doing the next thing that needs to happen. There's more of a sense of flow. So that's what we're pointing to, more that sense of flow as opposed to there's something here in the center that's stable and permanent and steady and everything else is just rotating or revolving around it. Instead of this strong sense of self, what if there's more just kind of like a flow of things? That's what we're pointing to here. not being pointed to is this idea of maybe abandoning oneself. What do I mean by that? I mean that this I, 
idea that sometimes there might be an experience, an emotion that requires our attention, that's calling for our attention, but we ignore it. We turn away, we reach for an an external distraction, and for some way we're just not present for it. Kind of, you know, abandoning ourselves when there's some strong experience. To be sure, sometimes that is the wise thing to do. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call that abandoning ourselves. I would say that's some wisdom recognizing, you know what, this just feels too overwhelming. I'm going to do something else so I can feel more resourced. I'm going to do something else so that I feel more steady. That's different than just this habitual turning away and distracting ourselves. We could even say, you know, our whole society is built around distracting ourselves. It's so easy to do. So there's a way that we are not present for our experience, whether it's a really strong emotion or maybe it's even just something minor that's happening. Maybe it's not because it makes us uncomfortable, but because somehow we're discounting our experiences, thinking they're not important or not worthwhile, and my experiences don't really matter. There might be some kind of like, it's not important. You know, implicit is this idea of like, I'm not important. That's some way we might be like abandoning ourselves. It's kind of being dismissive of our experience. And there can be a real poignancy with this practice when we start to like f- turn towards ourselves, our experience, what's happening in the mind, what's happening in the body. And there can be some tenderness around, wow, it's been so long when I haven't been present. And to honor and respect that experience Sometimes that's part of the retreat experience, that poignancy, that tenderness, a little bit of sadness and grieving of all those times when we haven't been present, when we have abandoned ourselves. Like I said, our society is often kind of like built around this. I know, I certainly did a whole lot of that. There was something about becoming a research scientist was a way in which it was all about the data. It was all about my experiments. It was all about, you know, how I was going to help cure cancer, right, because of the re- work I was doing in the lab. It was really important, but somehow I felt like I'm not important. It was a way of kind of like really discounting myself as an individual. And it took some getting used to that, oh yeah, my experience actually matters here. So when I'm talking about like letting go of the self, the sense of being at the center or separate from everything else, I want to distinguish that from we don't want to abandon ourselves. So maybe I'm just like, this could be a semantics thing but I'm pointing to that sometimes we need to actually really be present for what's happening. So when we hear this idea of letting go, I don't want us to think that we should discount or turn away from our experience for whatever reason. 
Instead, it turns out to be the opposite. If there's an uncomfortable sensation in the knee, I like to use this example because it's not so uncommon that there is an uncomfortable sensation in the knee. Instead of, oh man, my knee is killing me. Instead of my knee is killing me, instead of kind of this, with a practice, with a oh, settling, this uh, opening, relaxing, some of the letting go, it's just stabbing, sharpness, moving, dynamic, stabbing. See how it just becomes more an experience rather than all about a person who's having an experience. This is the direction we're going. Because that's where more freedom is. Because that's where more peace, more happiness, more ease is. Right? Because as soon as we say, oh, my knee is killing me, then the next beat is, oh, I wish it would go away. I wish it would go away. Here, I have to fix it. I Maybe stories of going to the doctors or... The injury we had earlier, and that's why it hurts, and you know all these things that kind of start building up our sense of self, and we're missing our life, we're missing our experience while this is happening. So, not discounting or not abandoning ourselves. Some of you may know that. This idea of nibbana, awakening, liberation, is a letting go. It's a letting go that's so thorough, there's no longer letting go. There's no longer a a self that has to let go of something else. Maybe we would just say, instead of letting go, there's just going. That simple. So letting go like completely in a way that nothing is left that there's not even anyone to let go of anything. This is awakening. And something that I love so much about this practice that is so meaningful for me is that the, if we want to use this word, kind of like goal or the direction we're going, it's not like it's all hardship, 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 and then Shazam, something fantastic happens. We're letting it go all along. All along. It's not like something different is going to happen at the end. This whole practice is about kind of like this letting go. And as the mind starts to settle, and I'm sure you've had this 
experience on retreat, some of you are reporting it, not using this language necessarily, but you start to see, oh yeah, there's a little clinging here that I didn't see before. Oh yeah, I can let go in a way that I didn't notice before. And so part of this practice is we're letting go and we start to see some of the ways in which we're not letting go and then eventually those get let go and they help see us in more ways. So there's all this way and there's these tiny little liberations from what we're holding on to. This movement, this maybe this sacred act of putting up on the altar is all along this path. But to do this, we kind of like have to have the confidence and trust. After a lifetime of clinging, this is a habit, we all have this. It's appropriate for part of the human development. But there comes a time when it's no longer so helpful, some of the things that we're holding on to. So to have the confidence and the trust and the wisdom and the understanding to let go what it is, how to do it, when to do it, how to allow it to happen. Does one even do it or does it just happen? This kind of thing takes practice, a lot of practice. This is why the whole practice is filled with letting go so that we have plenty of practice with this, this movement towards greater and greater freedom and peace and ease. It takes practice to unlearn a lifetime of clinging and craving. A lifetime of clinging and craving. Of course, we all have this. Maybe I'm tempted to tell another tiny little Gil Fronstall story, but (laughs) maybe I'll just say this this small one because... Um, I heard this at the end of a kind of a longish retreat, and it stuck with me all these years. Gil was describing how um, he would cook breakfast for the family on, I think it was Sundays, and he would cook waffles. This was everything on Sundays. And apparently, at this time, his youngest son had this idea of how waffles. There should be syrup in every single one of the little squares and none on the plate. Had to just be in the little squares. Every single one filled, you know, just right. So here's the parent, right? You're trying to get this just right, you know, for the child there. And then Gil says, oh, one time his son just let it go. <laughs> And so the freedom that the son had instead of insisting that waffles be a particular way, but also the parents of that child, right? They get some freedom too, right? And this is how it works. When we're letting go, it allows other people, other things to be who they are. They get freedom too. So this is a gradual process. It takes time. It takes practice. 
and it requires our kind of letting go of our allegiance to some of these things that aren't so helpful for us. And also it requires compassion when we see ourselves not able to let go. That's okay. This happens. This is part of the process. It's uncomfortable to see like, wow, I'm still holding on to this. It's not helpful, but I'm still doing it. Can we just recognize letting go of the idea that we should be able to let go of it? So maybe I'll end with a short little poem by the same poet that I really like, Rosemary Traumer. And this poem is called A Little Pep Talk. The swirling ash doesn't try to become a log again. The flying leaves don't attempt to return to the tree. The girl can't untwist her genome back into separate strands. The flower in the bread can't return to the sack, can't undo the kneading of hands. In all things lives a memory of letting go and the chance to transform into what it can't know. What do you say to that, heart? Good self, what do you say to that? I'll read it one more time. The swirling ash doesn't try to become a log again. The flying leaves don't attempt to return to the tree. The girl can't untwist her genome back into separate strands. The flour and the bread can't return to the sack, can't undo the kneading of hands. In all things lives a memory of letting go and the chance to transform into what it can't know. What do you say to that, heart? Good self, what do you say to that? So let's just sit for a moment. You don't have to shift your posture if you don't want to, but just for a moment. 